Welcome back to another episode of the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 Review Podcast Series. On today's episode, we discuss the topic of heart failure found under the cardiovascular section on MedBullets.com. Let's start off with a clinical snapshot. A 60-year-old man presents to his primary care physician for several months of dyspnea on exertion, exercise intolerance, and lower extremity swelling. He has a past medical history of sarcoidosis. On physical exam, he has jugular venous distension and pitting edema in the lower extremities. An echocardiogram shows an injection fraction of 35%. The clinical definition of heart failure is the inability of the heart to pump blood throughout the body, leading to congestion and decreased perfusion. Heart failure can be broken down into systolic dysfunction, diastolic dysfunction, high output heart failure, and decompensated heart failure. Systolic dysfunction is due to loss of contractile strength and results in low ejection fraction, usually lower than 45%. Diastolic dysfunction is due to impairment and filling of the heart and often has a normal ejection fraction. High output heart failure occurs in the minority of patients and in this case, cardiac output exceeds metabolic demand. Decompensated heart failure occurs when symptoms are worsened or exacerbated and precipitating factors include infections, arrhythmias, excessive salt in the diet, known as post-holiday heart, uncontrolled hypertension, thyrotoxicosis, and myocardial infarction. Risk factors for heart failure include coronary artery disease, viral infection, alcohol abuse, hypertension, arrhythmias, metabolic syndrome, drugs such as doxorubicin, in which you should monitor cardiac function with echocardiography, and smoking. Again, to reiterate the high-yield risk factors for heart failure, know that coronary artery disease, viral infection, and hypertension can lead to heart failure. Now let's discuss the etiology of heart failure. Systolic dysfunction is due to ischemic heart disease, which is the most common, chronic hypertension, dilated cardiomyopathy, valvular disease, or congenital heart disease. Again, remember that ischemic heart disease is the most common cause of systolic dysfunction. Diastolic dysfunction is due to hypertension with left ventricular hypertrophy, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, amyloidosis, sarcoidosis, hemochromatosis, scleroderma, and postoperative or radiation fibrosis. Again, remember that hypertension with left ventricular hypertrophy, amyloidosis, and sarcoidosis can all cause diastolic dysfunction. High output heart failure can be due to obesity, myeloproliferative disorders, arterial venous fistula, or thyrotoxicosis. Now let's discuss the pathogenesis of heart failure, starting with systolic dysfunction. Systolic dysfunction is most commonly due to dilated cardiomyopathy and ischemic heart disease. There is a decrease in contractility, leading to a decrease in ejection fraction and a subsequent increase in diastolic volume. This leads to an increase in systemic vascular resistance. Diastolic dysfunction is most commonly due to myocardial hypertrophy, and you'll see a decrease in compliance, leading to problems with relaxation and filling of the heart. In diastolic dysfunction, you'll see a normal ejection fraction and normal end diastolic volume. Right heart failure most commonly results from left heart failure, and this can be caused by elevated pulmonary artery pressure from COPD or idiopathic pulmonary hypertension. In high-output heart failure, you will see a high cardiac output and decreased systemic vascular resistance. It often occurs in the setting of existing systolic or diastolic dysfunction. 
Conditions associated with heart failure are obstructive sleep apnea and major depression disorder. Now let's discuss the presentation of heart failure. Symptoms of heart failure include dyspnea on exertion, orthopnea, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, fatigue, and pulmonary edema. On physical exam, specifically the cardiovascular exam, you'll note pitting lower extremity edema, JVD or jugular venous distension, and an S3 sound may be heard on auscultation. On pulmonary exam, you'll note a shortness of breath. You may hear rawls due to liquid accumulation in alveoli due to left heart pressure overload, and also due to alveoli popping open during inhalation, causing rawls on exam. Abdominal examination may be remarkable for ascites or hepatojugular reflex. Now let's discuss imaging. On chest radiograph, you may find pulmonary vascular congestion, pleural effusion, cardiomegaly, curly beelines, or interstitial edema. An echocardiogram is indicated to confirm the diagnosis of heart failure, and it classifies whether heart failure is due to systolic or diastolic dysfunction. The findings of an echocardiogram assess for low ejection fraction and for systolic or diastolic dysfunction. Other important diagnostic studies include an ANP and BNP level and checking an ECG. Atrial and B-type or brain natriuretic peptide are known as ANP and BNP respectively, and they're released by the ventricles and the atria in response to increased stretch. Elevated levels are often seen in decompensated CHF. A normal BNP excludes a diagnosis of CHF. Common ECG findings include sinus tachycardia, and it may also show arrhythmia or ventricular hypertrophy. The diagnosis of heart failure is based on clinical presentation and echocardiogram. Now let's discuss the New York Heart Association functional classification of heart failure. In class 1 heart failure, there are no limitations of physical activity and no heart failure symptoms. In class 2, there may be mild limitations of physical activity and symptoms present only with significant exertion. Patients are often comfortable at rest or with mild activity. In class 3, you may see a marked limitation of physical activity and symptoms present with mild exertion. Patients are only comfortable at rest. Finally, in class 4, patients are confined to the bed or a chair and symptoms occur at rest. Consider acute respiratory distress syndrome on the differential for heart failure. Distinguishing factors include diffuse crackles in the lungs, no S3 heart sound, and increased work of breathing on exam. Also note that the chest radiograph will show bilateral alveolar infiltrates. Now let's discuss the treatment of heart failure. Know that mortality is decreased with angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, or ACE inhibitors, or angiotensin II receptor blockers, or ARBs, beta blockers, and spironolactone, or aplerinone. Again, to emphasize this high-yield point, know that mortality in heart failure is decreased with ACE inhibitors, ARBs, beta blockers, and spironolactone, or aplerinone. Conservative management of heart failure includes avoiding excessive salt in the diet, and this is indicated in all patients. Medical management for systolic dysfunction includes ACE inhibitors or ARBs, and this is indicated to lower mortality, in particular when there is a decreased ejection fraction. ACE inhibitors or ARBs are also indicated in systolic dysfunction because renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system and ADH is upregulated in these patients. ACE inhibitors or ARBs are used in systolic or diastolic dysfunction, as well as asymptomatic left ventricular systolic dysfunction. 
Other medical management in systolic dysfunction includes hydralazine and nitrates. These medications are indicated when ACE inhibitors or ARBs are contraindicated, such as in those with renal failure. Hydralazine and nitrates are also indicated in systolic dysfunction in acute episodes of congestive heart failure via preload and afterload reduction. Beta blockers are indicated in systolic or diastolic dysfunction, and they are known to lower mortality. Other mortality-lowering drugs include metoprolol, carbetalol, and bisoprolol. Spironolactone or aplerinone are indicated to lower mortality, in particular in more severe disease with reduced ejection fraction and systolic or diastolic dysfunction. The side effects of these medications are as follows. Spironolactone has antiandrogen effects such as erectile dysfunction and gynecomastia in men and can also cause hyperkalemia. Diuretics are indicated in heart failure in the cases of pulmonary edema, CHF exacerbations, and lower extremity edema in both systolic or diastolic dysfunction. Loop diuretics are used to manage acute symptoms and are not effective for long-term management due to nephrogenic adaptations. Thiazide diuretics are also used for management in heart failure. Digoxin is an inotrope and is indicated in the case of severe systolic dysfunction and it does not improve mortality, but it does reduce hospitalizations. Positive pressure ventilation is also used in the management of heart failure. Medical devices used for management of heart failure include the AICD, or Automatic Implantable Cardioverter slash Defibrillator, and the Biventricular Pacemaker. The AICD is indicated in the case of dilated cardiomyopathy with ejection fraction of less than 35%. A biventricular pacemaker is indicated in the case of severe left ventricular systolic dysfunction with ejection fraction of less than 35%. It's also indicated in the cases of dilated cardiomyopathy and left bundle branch blocks. Complications of heart failure include a CHF exacerbation, cardiac arrhythmias, and respiratory failure. Now that we've covered the high-yield topics of heart failure, let's do some practice questions to get a feel for how this material might show up on test day. A 57-year-old man presents to the emergency department with shortness of breath. He was eating dinner with his family during the holidays and felt very short of breath, thus prompting him to come in. The patient has a past medical history of diabetes, hypertension, two myocardial infarctions, and obesity. Physical exam is notable for bilateral pulmonary crackles and a jugular venous distension. Chest radiography reveals an enlarged cardiac silhouette and blunting of the costophrenic angles. The patient is started on a medication for his acute symptoms. Two hours later, he states his symptoms have vastly improved and repeat chest radiography is notable for an enlarged cardiac silhouette. Which of the following is a property of the medication most likely given? Is it one, can lead to respiratory depression? Two, it causes venodilation and a decrease in preload. Three, it increases cardiac contractility and afterload. Four, it increases cardiac contractility and decreases afterload. Or five, chronic use leads to long-term nephrogenic adaptations. The answer is five. Chronic use leads to long-term nephrogenic adaptations. This patient is presenting with shortness of breath pulmonary edema, and multiple cardiac risk factors suggesting a diagnosis of congestive heart failure. Loop diuretics are effective for acute symptomatic control of CHF 
and lead to long-term nephrogenic adaptations, making them less effective over time. Blood pressure medications have specific indications and should be thought of as either mortality-lowering or symptomatic. It is best to prescribe blood pressure medications that also treat other conditions. Important examples include beta blockers, which treat migraines, CHF, and ischemic heart disease, and in that case, they're mortality-lowering, ACE inhibitors or ARBs, which are also used in the management of diabetes and scleroderma renal crisis, in which case they're also mortality-lowering, thiazide diuretics, which treat general hypertension and hypocalcemia and osteoporosis, in which case they're mortality-lowering, and calcium channel blockers, which treat Raynaud phenomenon, in which they're not mortality-lowering. Loop diuretics are an example of a diuretic that is excellent for acute symptomatic episodes, such as a CHF flare. However, they do not lower mortality. Chronic use can lead to nephrogenic adaptations, making this class of drugs less effective over time and subsequently require higher doses. Now let's cover the incorrect answers. Answer 1. A medication that can lead to respiratory depression describes morphine, which is typically given in a CHF flare to manage pain. However, it would not treat the patient's symptoms and shortness of breath. A medication that causes venodilation and a decrease in preload describes nitroglycerin, which is given in an acute CHF flare, but is less likely to result in such a profound improvement in symptoms several hours later. Answer 2. A medication that causes venodilation and a decrease in preload describes nitroglycerin, which is given in an acute CHF flare, but is less likely to result in such a profound improvement in symptoms several hours later. Answer 3. A medication that increases cardiac contractility and afterload describes dopamine, which could be given in an acute CHF flare if diuretics and oxygen do not offer any benefit. This drug would likely be started if initial therapy failed. Answer 4. A medication that increases cardiac contractility and decreases afterload describes amrinone or milrinone, which are phosphodiesterase inhibitors, which could improve symptoms and would be used if initial therapy with diuretics failed. Now for a bullet summary. Long-term use of loop diuretics leads to nephrogenic adaptations, which make the drug less effective over time. All right, let's try another question. A 67-year-old man presents to his primary care physician for a follow-up appointment. He was released from the hospital one week ago for an appropriately managed ST elevation myocardial infarction. However, he has not filled any of his prescriptions and did not attend his follow-up appointment as scheduled. The patient has a past medical history of hypertension and peripheral vascular disease. His temperature is 97.5 degrees Fahrenheit or 36.4 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 167 over 118. Pulse is 90 per minute. Respirations are 14 per minute, and oxygen saturation is 99% on room air. Physical exam is notable for jugular venous distension and bilateral lower extremity pitting edema. Echocardiography demonstrates an ejection fraction of 55%. Which of the following medications will have the greatest mortality benefit in this patient? 1. Atenolol, 2. Hydrochlorothiazide, 3. Lisinopril, 4. Metoprolol succinate, or 5. Propranolol. I'll give you a couple seconds to think about it. The correct response is 4. Metoprolol succinate. This patient is presenting with jugular venous distension, bilateral pulmonary crackles, and bilateral lower extremity pitting edema 
suggestive of congestive heart failure after a myocardial infarction, for which the greatest mortality-lowering agent is metoprolol succinate. Congestive heart failure occurs when the contractile ability of the heart is impaired, typically secondary to diabetes, hypertension, and dyslipidemia. Patients will present with decreased exercise tolerance, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, bilateral lower extremity pitting edema, and pulmonary crackles. Beta blockers are mortality-lowering agents in congestive heart failure as they decrease adrenergic tone on the heart and thus decrease oxygen demand. The beta blockers with mortality-lowering benefits include metoprolol succinate, carvedilol, and bisoprolol. Now let's discuss the incorrect answers. Answer 1. Atenolol does not offer the same significant mortality benefit in congestive heart failure when compared to metoprolol succinate, carvedilol, and bisoprolol. Answer 2. Hydrochlorothiazide may be indicated in the management of hypertension and fluid retention, but does not offer the significant mortality benefit of metoprolol succinate, carvedilol, and bisoprolol. Answer 3. Lisinopril does lower mortality in patients with congestive heart failure when they have a decreased ejection fraction, but not to the extent of metoprolol succinate, carvedilol, and bisoprolol. Remember that this patient's ejection fraction is 55%. Answer 5. Propranolol is a beta blocker without the mortality benefits in congestive heart failure of metoprolol succinate, carvedilol, and bisoprolol. Now for a final bullet summary. Metoprolol succinate, carvedilol, and bisoprolol are beta blockers that lower mortality in congestive heart failure. With that bullet summary, we wrap up today's episode on heart failure. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast, a daily audio review session by MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. Keep in mind that you can follow along with these podcast episodes by reviewing these topics directly on medbullets.com. You can listen to these episodes on the MedBullets website or mobile app while reading through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the MedBullets podcast thus far, we'd appreciate your consideration in leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast.